Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, September 25th, 2021. Right now it is Wednesday morning, and we have our friend Truthwitz here with us once again to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 54 of what is turning out to be by far the longest-running series of podcasts at Christagenia. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We had left off in our last presentation with a discussion of the little horn of Daniel chapter 8 and our interpretation identifying it as a reference to Muhammad and the creation of Islam. Doing that, we use the writings or, or the life of Isidore of Seville as an example of the anti-Jewish political climate of the era in which it becomes evident that Jews would certainly be motivated to find a method by which to combat the rise of Christianity in Europe for the benefit of their own interests, to defend their own interests. Two canons proposed by Isidore had become law, whereby crypto-Jews would be deprived of their own children, and all Jews would be forbidden to hold public office, even if they claim to be Christians. So we also see that in the early 7th century, Jews were considered as a race and not merely as a religion. Then we presented evidence from citations compiled by Clifton Emmerheiser revealing that Muhammad was one such racial Jew, at least on the side of his mother. Even the early stories of the founding of Islam relate accounts of Muhammad's having received the approval of Jewish rabbis for his new creed before he first left Mecca. Hello, Truthfids. Thank you for joining us once again. Hey, Bill. Uh, thanks for having me as always. Yeah, yeah. So um, continuing from last week, here we see that um, although Justinian did give power to the Pope, he did do a lot of good, right, by starting to ban Jews and, and keep essentially pushing them out or or if they left at their own will, whatever. But essentially, we got this revival of gradually pushing the Jews out of Europe. And we had this uh, this great period, right, where Europe really started to christianize and raise up and um, perhaps from his perspective he thought he was doing good in terms of giving all this power to the pope especially with all the uh, alternative christianities like Aryan christianity he thought it was a good thing to kind of standardize it and give all this power but he didn't see that the ultimate problem that would have inevitably happened right that christianity that catholicism wasn't actually completely correct there were things wrong with it and that would ultimately keep getting worse and um continuing we're gonna get into essentially the rise of muhammad and the invasions right the revelation the revelation part and here we see essentially that everything is essentially created by the jews even islam it's a tool a weapon to destroy us christianity and it ultimately did destroy a third of europe which we're going to get to of christendom so 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 yeah um we could get into it bill but but ultimately um that the revelation describes um you know in 
the Islam as essentially death and destruction. And that is how we should always see it. We should never see any of these people as allies or friends. They are the enemy just as much as the Jews. Right, Bill? Well, well look at what Islam has done with, with the development of Egypt or Syria or, or what we call Iran today. That these were that these were the greatest nations of their time 3,000 years ago. And today, and ever since Islam had taken those areas over and had mongrelized them, because Islam is the initiation of a, of a mongrelization process, it, its, its religious tenets prohibit any form of, of distinctions between races. We're all equal in the eyes of God. All of these Jewish ideals that we see expressed today are expressed in Islam. And even though I, I know for a fact that Middle Eastern Muslims do not like African Negroes or African blacks, that they can't discriminate against them under Islam. They have to accept them. Islam enforces that, and it enforced it throughout the entire medieval period as they had, the Arabs themselves, had employed African blacks in their armies and as its servants. And when I say employed, I, I mean very often as slaves, but sometimes as paid mercenaries. And that contribution of the Arab way of life into the Middle East and the Mediterranean basin is what has darkened those areas. That's why those people are, many of those people are not white today because they have that African blood in them and also the Canaanite blood, which was introduced through Islam. So the mongrelization process in hand in hand with the basically barbaric religion of the Quran, if I have to call it a religion, it does enslave men and it does cause death and destruction. It's it's look at Anatolia was the what was a gem of Greek civilization before the Ottomans, and where is it now? It's it's in the same place that it was in 500 years ago, if it weren't for the introduction of Western industrial and agricultural knowledge, they would still be sitting in tents. And I don't want, let's just leave it at that, because I don't want to get too graphic as to what they do in those tents. And Islam is also, it accepts all sorts of sexual perversions. And, and it's actually, there are actually things which are codified into the Islamic religion that the having sex with sheep and goats and, and camels and even any kind of animal is acceptable to them. And it's also commonplace with them because they value their virgin daughters. They will approve of sexual relations with young boys. And, and they do it all the time. I know that they do it in practice. 
So it, it's definitely a religion for bastards, and it does cause death and destruction. There's no doubt. And, and the scriptures did see this coming. They did see it ahead of time. But it's just another punishment upon the children of Israel for the sins of the children of Israel. That we have this plague called Islam and these people among us today. Before we continue our discussion of Muhammad, there are two things we have discussed previously upon which I would like to elaborate. The first of the four divisions of Alexander's empire. After his death, there was no clear heir to succeed him. And his son, who later became known as Alexander IV, had not yet been born. He had a half-brother named Philip III. Alexander, I should say, Alexander the Great, had a half-brother named Philip III. After a fierce rivalry, Alexander's half-brother, Philip Aridaeus, ruled for a short time as king of Macedonia with Perdiccas, Alexander's former bodyguard and cavalry general, serving as regent. But both Philip and Alexander's infant son were ultimately murdered. Perdiccas later died in Egypt after a failed attempt to take that portion of the empire from Ptolemy. After Macedon, the other three divisions of the empire were the Ptolemaic Kingdom of Egypt, the Seleucid Empire in Syria and in the east, and the Kingdom of Pergamon in Asia Minor in Western Asia Minor, I should say, because the Seleucid Empire did hold portions of Eastern Asia Minor. Writing of the year 311 BC, or thereabouts, and, and the actually it's interesting because if you examine the chronology of Diodorus Siculus, I think it's either two or three years off from most of the other mainstream historical chronologies that had been constructed of the time. But that's immaterial. Any chronology of ancient times can be a couple of years off. Writing of the year 311 BC, in Book 19, Chapter 105 of his Library of History, Diodorus Siculus described a treaty made among the successors to Alexander and said in part that Ptolemy would rule Egypt and the cities adjacent thereto in Libya and Arabia. That being said, the Seleucids and Ptolemies had fought each had later fought each other over control of Palestine. As soon as Alexander's empire was divided up, they began each of the men who became the kings or, or rulers of the four areas had begun fighting with one another. In, in order to reassemble the empire, as Perdiccas sought to do, or to get larger pieces of it. So the Seleucids and Ptolemies fought each other over control of Palestine, and the Seleucids ultimately prevailed, after which they came to control Edumia and the Nabataeans. The Nabataeans had in turn controlled the land on the coast of the Red Sea to the south, which included the area around Mecca, while the degree of control which the Seleucids exercised over the Nabataeans is debatable. And there are records of Seleucid military failures 
in the 3rd century BC. A distinct Nabataean kingdom did not emerge until after 170 BC, around the same time that the Hasmoneans in Judea had attained independence from the Seleucids. So the history is very sparsely recorded. There, there were really only scattered records of the relationships. But at given times, the Seleucids did rule over the Nabataeans, or the Nabataeans were at least tributaries to the Seleucids. Even later, the Nabataeans were subject to Rome and to the Byzantines, where nearly all of Arabia, including the entire Sinai Peninsula, were divided by them into three provinces. They were called Palestine I, and then Palestine II Arabia, which was to the east, and then Palestine III Salutaris to the south. I will include a map with this article. And Palestine III encompassed the entire region around the Red Sea, including Mecca and Medina. So we would contend that the little horn of Daniel chapter 8 certainly did arise out of one of the four quarters of the kingdom of the ram found earlier in that same chapter. Now, now there are other ways to understand that the Nabataeans must have been subject to the Greeks, or at least tributaries to the Greeks, and even though I didn't write this into my notes, that's seen by the fact that we see Nabataean merchants were relatively able to travel freely throughout the Hellenistic lands during the same period, during the entire Hellenistic period. So if your merchants are able to travel freely through my country, there must be a reason, a cause why they were able to travel in that manner and trade freely in that manner. And that's because you must be, if I'm a much larger, more powerful empire, you must be either subject to my empire or a tributary to my empire or have other treaties of peace by which your merchants would be able to conduct their business within my empire. It's just that simple. Either you're going to become a pirate and hostile to me, whereby you're an enemy, or you're going to become a friend and make treaties of peace with me. And those treaties of peace would include certain concessions that you would have to make to me in order for me to allow trade, your conducting of trade, in my land. It's just that that's the way life works. So, so that's interesting, Bill. You think that um, Arabia would actually be in the Seleucid um, Empire rather than Ptolemy, at least, although they always fought back and forth, um, you know, over the territories in Judea. Originally, it was uh, the Seleucid territory. Well, well, I think that, right, I think it started out with the Ptolemies, according to the agreement of the successors, recorded by Diodorus Siculus, but it ended up under the control of the Seleucids. And that control appears to have been only marginal control for perhaps even short periods of time where the Seleucids never really held full rule over it. They never were able to govern it closely. 
perhaps they were spread too thin. It, it seems to me that the Seleucids began to weaken shortly after that the succession of Alexander, shortly after the Seleucid kings had, had come to rule in place of Alexander. They didn't hold on to the eastern provinces at all. They, they lost a lot of territory in the east. And that they could never really exert power and authority over it and hold it and maintain it for long periods of time. And I think the same is true of the South, that they could never really contain the Nabataeans as subjects for any long period of time. But they did at various times and perhaps on paper rule over those sections of Arabia. The Byzantines especially in the time of Justinian and his dealings with the Arabs, Justinian was in a position, and I forget his name, but Justinian had appointed a particular Nabatahian as king of all the Arabs. And I don't know how long that situation persisted after the death of Justinian, but that was the amount of control that the Byzantines were later able to exert over the Nabataeans. Yeah, and um, as for the Seleucids, they only had, um, you know, the invasion of Macedon, they only had Greeks. And after that, well, all, all we could do is basically try and um, form legions from all the territories, right, and just try and hold power the, the old empire way. But it wasn't like, for example, the Mede Empire or the Persians, where they had a mass of their own people that they could call on, right? Millions, tens of millions. All we could do is try and uh, just forcefully control the territories by just going from one to one and asserting authority, right? So it's no surprise that the control wasn't completely stable or absolute, right? Right. It was never even really absolute in the Roman period. There was a um, there was a war between the Nabataeans and the Seleucids, it's called the Battle of Cana in, in the histories, in, in, in the popular histories. And I think that was probably about 86 BC, 84 BC, something like that. That had guaranteed that the Seleucids would not have, would not anymore be able to exert power in the south, in, in Arabia, or, or actually in Palestine also. The Seleucids didn't go to war with the Hasmoneans at that time, but Alexander Janius pretty much had full control over Palestine at that time and actually had declared himself a king. He was the first of the Hasmonean high priests to call himself a king. If Alexander Janius was still alive at that time or his successor, I don't remember how long Alexander Janius ruled, and, and I'm pretty sure he ruled into the 70s BC, so he was probably still the high priest at that time. The Romans had come not long after that war and began to subject all of those states to themselves, including the Seleucids, right? So... The Parthians also had become so powerful in the east that the Seleucids never had a hope again of, of crossing the Euphrates River and ruling in Mesopotamia once the rise of the Parthians, the Parthians had, had virtually taken over the old, old Persia. 
So the history is never exactly black and white, but the Parthians had extended influence into Judea in that period. And certain of the high priests, when there were questions of succession or problems with Herod, had actually appealed to the Parthians to help them reestablish themselves in Judea. And the Parthians weren't able to hold on to that influence after the Romans, after the coming of the Romans, and the Romans had conquered Jerusalem, I think, in 63 BC. So the Nabataeans became a client state of the Romans at that time. But even in the time of Herod, 30, 40 years later, the Romans or Roman subject states were having problems with the Nabataeans. Herod had had battles with the Nabataeans. And, and I, I don't remember the precise outcomes, but he was never able to have complete victory over them. He could never achieve that. The Romans had to ha send the much larger forces than what Herod could raise to contain them. So the Arab state of, of the Nabataeans, the kingdom of the Nabataeans, did become quite powerful in the desert, right? In the desert where, where they dwelt and, and they were accustomed to dwelling and had clear advantages because the, it, it was very difficult for an outsider to supply and sustain armies in the desert. Now, now the land wasn't the complete desert that we imagine it to be. It was a lot more fertile then than it is now, but it was still a wilderness. And, and there still were areas at that time that were quite barren. So it was difficult to maintain an army and, and to become accustomed to the heat, which the Romans always complained about. They couldn't take the heat of, of, of the temperature. The, the climate was too harsh the Nabataeans were adjusted to that. Yeah, absolutely. You can't march 10,000 men and, and keep them supplied uh, in their metal armor, right? You just have to be on camels and just light infantry and hit and raids, exactly what the Arabs um, were good at. Right. Just like the Arabs in the mountains of Afghanistan are, are so hard to control because the, those mountains are such a wilderness. And, and the, the locals, right, the local population knows them a lot better than, than any invading army. So Alexander had a hard time keeping control of it and, and really couldn't. He set up a string of fortresses along the trade routes to protect the trade routes. But he couldn't control the people in the mountains. So Alexander had a problem with it. Russia had a problem with it. And, and even the highly mechanized and, and computerized United States armed forces have recently had their problems with it, right? It, even today, it's difficult to keep control of, of those barren wildernesses when the local people don't want to be controlled. Okay, that's a digression. With that, we're going to continue our discussion of the Little Horn of Daniel chapter 8. I'm going to repeat some of the things I said last week as a summary and, and give the reasons for the identification. Probably, once again, hopefully in different words, this won't last too long. I don't know if you have anything else to say. No, it's fine. We can proceed. 
So here we shall repeat the relevant portion of the prophecy found in Daniel chapter 8, after it described the dividing of the kingdom of the ram into four pieces, where it then says, And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east, and, and this to me is significant, and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great, even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the hosts and other stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Now, if you take that literally, it, if you imagine a literal fulfillment of that, then you end up with Roman Catholic and Southern Baptist science fiction fantasies, right? <laughs> <laughs> that must mean something else, right? It's allegory. Yeah, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice. And, and the word sacrifice is implied there by reason of transgression. And it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. So here we would assert that the references to the host of heaven and to stars are a Hebrew parallelism for the pleasant land in the prior verse, and that land must have been to the north and west, not to the south and east, which certainly was the location of the children of Israel at the time of Muhammad. Once Islam had ignited the lust of the Arab tribes that embraced it, a series of never-ending invasions was set off, which certainly did destroy a third of what was then Christendom. In the interpretation of that portion of Daniel's vision, found later in a chapter, in the same chapter, we read once again of the four divisions of the empire, and in the later time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. In other words, he will be a puppet, and he shall destroy wonderfully, and shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy, he also shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart. And by peace, Islam being the religion of peace, by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without hand. So, as we had also asserted, unlike the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, which makes war against the saints in the name of Christ, speaking as a dragon with the mouth of a lamb, while they are all given into his hand, that the saints of the Most High would be given into his hand, meaning the Roman Catholic popes from the time of Justinian, this little horn destroys the saints while opposing Christ and making war against them, making war directly against them. So, the little horns must represent two different entities. And historic, the historic entities which had fulfilled those roles 
are indeed the Roman Catholic Church, began by Justinian, and the false religion of Islam began by Muhammad, or at least he's credited with founding it. So with that, we're going to move on into Revelation chapter 9, and most of what follows here today is going to be condensed from my February 2011 commentary on Revelation chapters 8 and 9, which I will link here because I have made some minor changes and added some additional commentary. Yeah, and um, Bill, just because it's been a few centuries, people completely forget of what, what Islam did to uh, Christian them, right, or Europe. They think uh, that because they live with us peacefully now, or, or you know, false peace, that they're okay now. But but it's clear as soon as they get a minority, that soon as um they get a majority, sorry, then they start coming after Christians straight away, right? And it will just be just like it was then. People. What we have such a loss of, of history, not in, in the books that are in the libraries, but in the minds of the people, that their history, that they learn history in high school or even in, in the university. And I actually did a presentation on this several years ago as part of the Protocols of Satan series, as part of the, that the series I did on the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zeon, which I pray is going to be recommenced one day soon because I'm not even halfway finished with that. But as part of that series, I took the curriculum for history teachers, people who want to be history teachers, high school history teachers. I took the curriculum for that from the University of Auburn, which is a traditional Christian Southern University, and examined that curriculum to spell out exactly how much history a prospective history teacher has to learn in order to be a history teacher. And it's a joke. It's a damn joke. It really is quite pathetic that they don't learn any history at all. What they learn is uh, uh, how to think newspeak, right? It is how to, it is to be, that they're indoctrinated into the modern pop society through the little history that they, they learn. You should learn much more history. You could learn much more history simply sitting home and reading books and learn real history. Yeah, but I bet it's they, all just um, World War II, um, you know, the so-called Holocaust, and then the slave trade, how evil whites are, and then just a few uh, kings like Henry VIII and his six wives, and that's about it. That's yeah, that is about probably all you it. need to know. Right? And everything else is related to pop culture, the history of the civil rights movement, the, the history of women's suffrage or, or women's liberation, things like that. And they get more of that than they do real history. They don't get hardly any ancient history. And if they do, it's only three or four course hours and it's over with. Anyway, Vienna was under siege by the Ottomans, by Muslims, as late as 1683. That's only 340 years ago that the Muslims were still trying to invade Europe. The Battle of Kosovo 
I believe was in the 1500s. The Poles in Martin Luther's time, as Martin Luther wrote his books, his treatises, they weren't really books, his lengthy treatise on, on the Jews and their lies, he had mentioned several times how the, the eastern states, Poland, Lithuania, they were still at war with Muslims in the time of Martin Luther. And if it weren't for the Poles and the Lithuanians and some of the Germans to the east and the Hungarians, if it weren't for those groups, and when I say Germans to the east, I mean primarily the Austrians, if it weren't for those groups, Islam would have overrun Europe 400, 500 years ago. They didn't stop at Constantinople. They made war in the Balkans and in Eastern Europe for 200 years after the fall of Constantinople. We would all be flying carpets and wearing kufis right now if it weren't for the Polish princes and, and Lithuanians and Austrians and Hungarians that fought Islam. And, and that those lasted people for a couple have, um, hundred years. You know, Muslim friends or whatever, and they think that they're friends, well, they'll be in for a rude awakening, right? Because secretly, I'm sure they just despise us, but they just go along with it because they have to, at least at the moment, right? Right. It's the goal of Islam. It's codified into their religion that everybody should be converted to Islam. So when they can't do it overtly, they very craftily migrate into certain nations and attempt to make converts in a friendly manner. Once there's enough of them in any one nation, they will start to convert by the sword. That's what their religion demands them to do. That is why Vlad the Impaler, who is demonized by the Jews, was actually a hero to the Romanians, where he started impaling them on the roads leading into Romania so that they would get the message and stay the hell out. And that's what a real Christian hero does. Why is he demonized by the Jews? Why do we have these Count Dracula stories where his name is basically slandered by these Jewish fairy tales? And, and Count Dracula really describes a Jew more than it describes Vlad the Impaler. It's a slander. And, and it's the Jewish corruption of our history. They've corrupted large parts of our history, of our view of history. So getting on to Revelation chapter 9. Now we shall see from Revelation chapter 9 that the words of Christ himself corroborate our interpretation of Daniel chapter 8 for us. But we must warn that it is difficult to take up a chapter in the middle of the book of Revelation without first understanding the prophecies which precede, and we cannot possibly discuss them all here at length. May it suffice to say that Revelation chapters 6 through 8 describe the progression and fall of the Roman Empire, even with the sealing of the tribes in chapter 7. Revelation chapter 8 ends with 
the fourth of a prophecy of seven trumpets, each describing some great process or event in the future history of the people of God, future to the time at which John had recorded it in the late first century. That doesn't mean it's to our future. And, and that's, people get totally confused when they read the Revelation because they don't understand that these prophecies actually predict future history in allegories. Revelation chapter 8 ends with the fourth prophecy, the fourth of a prophecy of seven trumpets. At the end of chapter of the chapter, three woes were announced. And the rise of Islam and its conquest of parts of Christendom constitute two of those three woes. So we will read, and we won't explain all the three woes here, that they're already explained in the relevant subsequent chapters of our commentary on the Revelation. We will explain two of those woes here. So we will read the first portion of Revelation chapter 9, which follows. You sound like you might have something to add. No, that's okay. I'm sorry. This, oh, sorry, this is where um, essentially it is basically describing from the biblical view how we should view Islam, right? And how every Christian should view uh, a Muslim in their office, right? Absolutely. And, and if Revelation chapter 6 through 8 described the fall of Rome, which even early Christian writers thought that it did, I believe it was Irenaeus who actually, and, and this is somewhere in my commentaries at Christogenia. I believe it was Irenaeus who understood that putting Daniel together with the Revelation, that understood that Rome was doomed to fall. And he understood that in the second century AD, over 200 years before Rome fell, at a time when Rome was, well, historically at the height of its power, but it was really, once you understand the process of its fall, it was really just beyond the height of its power, right? It had already started to decline. It reached the height of its power, probably, of, of its, I should say, I, I don't, it wasn't totally beneficial, and it wasn't Christian, but the beneficent height of Rome's power, of course, came and, and passed with Augustus. But it was the height of its territorial expansion with Trajan about 130 AD, maybe 125 AD in there. I don't remember exactly when Trajan ruled, but it was right in there. That Trajan had brought Rome to its biggest size, let's say, to the height of its territorial acquisitions. And from there, it was all downhill. It had already started to decline from, from a widely historic viewpoint by the time of Trajan. And, and so, that's pretty amazing, right? What our ancestors did, um, you know, you know, moving into uh, Germany or that region, living in swamps and uh, forests, gradually building up, up against the most powerful empire of the time, Rome, with all its territory, and within three, four hundred years, they completely destroyed it, right? Right. But, but Rome had started to make concessions to the Germanic tribes by allowing them to come into certain provinces in the third century, the very early third century. 
when the Goths first started going into Pannonia, I believe it was, and, and Dacia, and were allowed to settle there by the Romans. And and that contributed to their undoing. <laughs> so it, it we see that Rome, wow, just like in, in, in the um, American Empire, Ronald Reagan in the 1980s had conducted the first amnesty for illegal Mexican aliens. And we're seeing the same process here, just different characters, that eventually it would be an undoing. Okay, that's a digression that's on a different track. But if we understand that Revelation chapter 6 through 8 described the fall of Rome, we must understand that Revelation chapter 9 is indeed describing a process that begins right after the fall of Rome. Now, of course, Rome still stood in the east in the Byzantine Empire, but that was only a shadow of the former glory of the empire. And this fits hand in hand with the prophecies in Daniel chapters 7 and 8. Revelation chapter chapters 8, 6, 8, nine, and 9 describe what would happen with the fall and aftermath of the fall of Rome, and so do Daniel chapters 7 and 8 with the two little horns. <laughs> Even though Daniel's, the scope of, of Daniel is broader because he goes back further in time to begin with Alexander in Daniel chapter 8, or the further in time to begin with a whole series of four empires in Daniel chapter 7. So the scope is broader, but it's bringing us to the same point in history, which is that this Islamic invasion after the fall of Rome. So reading from Revelation chapter 9, And the fifth angel sounded the trumpet, and I saw a star from heaven fallen to earth, and to him had been given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke ascended from the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air had become darkened from the smoke of the pit. And from the smoke locusts came out into the earth, and authority had been given to them like the scorpions of the earth have authority. And it had been spoken to them in order that they do not injure the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor tree except those men who do not have the seal of Yahweh upon their foreheads. And it had been given to them that they should not kill them, but that they shall be tested for five months, and their torment is as the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. And in those days men shall seek death, yet they shall not find it, and they shall desire to die, yet death flees from them. In our Revelation commentary, we follow both Howard Rand and Bertrand Compare by identifying this passage with the rise of Mohammedism and the Arab conquests of the formerly white regions of Palestine, Mesopotamia, and the northern coast of Africa, as well as many of the islands and coasts of southern Europe. So we also compared this passage to the statements from Daniel chapter 8, which we have already cited here. So I'm not going to repeat them all again. So what I'm saying in that paragraph is that I'm not the one who discovered this connection. 
this interpretation of prophecy. Neither is Clifton. It's much older than that. And if you went back to Howard Rand and Bertrand Compare, you'll find that they also cited older authors who had also made these connections. Once the historical view of prophecy is adopted, then we can begin to understand prophecy. But if you're going to follow LaHaye and Jenkins, you're going to be wandering lost forever and not realize that these things, that many of these things are, have already occurred and that some of them are still occurring because history is not over. So some of the revelation is still to be fulfilled. And it's being fulfilled. We just can't see it when we are inside of it. So, where we see an invasion, described as an invasion of locusts here, it is not a stretch to associate with this with Mohammedanism, since Arabia is famous as a land of locusts. In fact, as a friend recently pointed out to me, I don't know if it was you or somebody else, Truthvids. This was recently pointed out to me because I had never seen it before. Arabia and Arab are spelled in Hebrew with the letters Ayin Resh Bet, which is, we would have to write A-R-B. Whereas the word for locust is Arbe, and it's spelled Aleph Resh Beth Hey. And we would have to transliterate that, even though ayin and aleph are two different letters in Hebrew. We would have to translate, transliterate those Hebrew letters that spell the word for locust, arba, as A-R-B-H. So, Arab is A-R-B, and arba, or locust, is A-R-B-H. And while one word begins with the letter ayin and the other with aleph, they are very close and are usually each transliterated with the English letter A. Both words have resh and bet, rb, at their core. And arbe only has the letter hey, or h, affixed at the end. So the two words are very similar, and it is very likely that they are etymologically related. In Arabia, locust eggs stay under the desert sand until it rains, and then they begin to hatch and swarm. So this helps us identify who these people are and where they come from. Egypt and parts of Arabia were one of the four portions of Alexander's empire, as I have explained, from where the Ptolemies or the Seleucids had ruled in until Roman times. The later time of their kingdom is just as well a reference to Greek rulers in general as it is to the Ptolemies or Seleucids themselves. And the Greeks are still the rulers of the East in the Byzantine period, as the Byzantines also ruled over Arabia. Locusts are generally harmless to men although they devour crops and bring men to starvation. But these locusts are different. They don't eat grass and green things. But they have authority or power like the scorpions of the earth 
have power. And those words which I translated as authority may also be translated as power. I use the word authority in my translation on purpose to show that it's not speaking of literal locusts, but of men, if we want to call them men. So we would assert that the scorpions are symbolic of the Edomite Jews who devised Islam for Muhammad and who gave him his power. This can be seen at Luke chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, where Yahshua Christ said, I beheld the adversary, or Satan, falling as lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given to you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and upon all the power of the enemy, and no one shall by any means do you injustice. These serpents and scorpions were not to be taken literally in that passage, but as metaphors for certain people, which we see are of the adversary, or Satan. Then, where it and says... It's, um, Bill, it's interesting that there's no dragon mentioned there as Muhammad. He wasn't a dragon, he was just a pawn of the dragons, right? Of the, the Jew, uh, Edomite Jews behind the scenes, right? Well, well, right, and I believe he was part Jewish, as we had illustrated last week. But he 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 didn't have the same power as um, that those bankers behind the scenes, or as Herod, right? He was just the general for the army, right? And and he wasn't his tribe wasn't at the time, even though his father is described as some wonderful prince. He evidently didn't have political power. And if his father had political power, Muhammad evidently didn't inherit that political power. He created this new religion. If, if he had political power, he could have forced this on the people of Mecca, where he was born. But instead, he tried to persuade them with this new religion. Now, in European history, and, and we can also see this in, in ancient history in the Near East, the king decreed what religion the people would follow. And, and in the Middle Ages, when kings and princes and tribal chieftains began to adopt Christianity, began to become converted to Christianity, the people followed. They didn't have much choice. You didn't have a choice as to what you believed. If your king believed something other than you did, you didn't always have the liberty of saying, well, well, I don't believe that. You'd probably lose your head. That's just life. That's life before this age of liberalism that we now live in. But even today, if you believe something contrary to everybody out in the street, you're going to be an outcast to at least a, a great extent. You're going to be a social outcast, if nothing else. So Muhammad, I didn't really want to get too much into the history of Muhammad here, but he was rejected at Mecca, and he went to Medina, which was a, another town or city which was northeast of Mecca. And he had much greater success in Medina at pushing his new religion, even though the Jews of Medina, who he thought would accept him, he expected the Jews to accept him, but they rejected him. He still had greater success at Medina with non-Jews 
with the, the Arab pagans and eventually went back and conquered Mecca, maybe 10 years later. And once he conquered Mecca, that was what facilitated the chain of events that would follow, where he ended up, he or his successors, I should say, ended up taking Islam to, to the four corners of Arabia and and raising an army with that and conquering the whole Middle East. It was Jews that facilitated that. They, they wanted a vehicle by which to take vengeance on Byzantium, which had controlled the whole Middle East practically, at least to the Euphrates River, and, and gain authority back in lands that were now Christian. So the serpents and scorpions of Luke chapter 10 were not to be taken literally in that passage. They were metaphors for certain people, which we see are, are connected to or associated with the adversary or Satan. So by that, we may understand how these locusts, these Arabs, had the authority of scorpions or the Jews or the enemies of Christ, which is the collective Satan. Then where it says that it had been spoken to them in order that they do not injure the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree. This behavior is contrary to locusts. So once again, we see that these locusts must be an allegory for hordes of men. But it was given to them to hurt those men who do not have the seal of Yahweh upon their foreheads. The seal upon the forehead is most likely a reference to those of the children of Israel who were not keeping the law or, or the lack of a seal upon their forehead. As the children of Israel were told in Deuteronomy chapter 6 to keep the commandments on their foreheads and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand and they shall be as frontlets between nine eyes, meaning on your forehead. And, and that's not to be taken literally. It's that everything you do and think, everything you do with your hand and think with your mind, you should do and think according to the laws of God. So if you lack the seal upon the forehead, it's because you are not following the laws of God. In verse 5, we read of these locusts, that it had been given to them that they should not kill them, but they shall be tested for five months, and their torment is as the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. As we have already explained here in our recent discussions of Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13, the fact that a day in prophecy can represent a year is evident in many places in Scripture. So the five-month period of the locusts seems to represent the approximate 150-year period of Islamic conquests over the Byzantine lands. This began around 622 AD when Mecca was entered by Muhammad and was eventually conquered in 632 AD. Within two years of Muhammad's death, his followers began their conquests outside of Arabia, first taking Syria, Persia, and Palestine. Now, they did that awfully quickly, and there were Edomite Jews throughout all of those places, 
In 652 AD, they already began attacking Sicily, and Arabs occupied parts of the island then for an extended period of time. By 670, they controlled the entire Middle East and began attacking Constantinople. From there, they had began conquering North Africa, and by 711 AD, they had crossed into Spain. It's very common knowledge that the Jews had brought them into Spain as vengeance against the Visigoths of Spain who had adopted Christianity and who had begun to construct a Christian kingdom. In 726 and again in 740, they captured Syracuse on Sicily, but they never took the entire island until the 9th century. In 736, the Arabs took Georgia north of the Caucasus Mountains. In 751, they even defeated Chinese forces in a battle near the Talas River in modern-day Kyrgyzstan. By 762, Baghdad was created as the capital of the Abbasid Caliphs, and Islamic conquests are virtually finished. So it is evident that the main period of Islamic conquest lasted for about five prophetic months, or 150 years. Then, until 1060 AD, when the Turks began to take Anatolia from the Byzantines, Arab rulers competed mostly among themselves, just like the Greek generals and, um, began to compete among themselves. Isn't, isn't it historically accurate that um, as they went from town to town, that wherever a synagogue was, uh, the, the Jews were untouched and they quickly moved on. They just left whatever Jew was there in charge, maybe a few troops, and just kept moving on and very quickly could take an entire country because they had these these Jews behind the scenes preparing the way, right? Right. I have I have never read of any Islamic persecution of Jews. The Jews occupied all these places, and they have never complained about an Islamic Shoah. It does seem that in every place, because the, the, the Jews of Babylon, the authors of the Babylonian Talmud, thrived throughout the Arabic period. Jews in every place were unmolested by the Arabs. Christians were forced to convert to Islam or to pay very heavy fines and much, much higher taxes if they were not Muslims. So Christians were put to the sword in order to convert, or they were heavily penalized as Islam began to soften its position towards Christians and let them live if they refused to convert. Yet they actually put them under very heavy taxation burdens instead. So Christians were persecuted. Yeah, and I can only imagine um, if they uh, converted, they would say, okay, prove it. Uh, marry your daughters to my sons. Well, well, right. They forced them to race mix anyway, right? That they were um, the Christians of, of the lands of the Arabic conquest. Those who managed to remain Christians were nevertheless became mongrels and, and race mixed with the Arabs. So one way or another, they, they were defeated. Continuing our reading of Revelation chapter 9, and there was something else I wanted to say there, but I don't remember what it is now. I'm sorry. 
And the likeness of the locusts are like horses, having been prepared for war, and upon their heads as crowns like gold, and their faces as faces of men, and they had hair as hair of women, and their teeth were as of lions, and they had breastplates as breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings as the sound of many chariot teams of horses running into battle. And they had tails and stingers like scorpions, and their power is in their tails to injure men for five months. They have over them a king, the messenger of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has a name, Destroyer. One woe has departed. Behold, there come yet two woes after these things." We're only going to describe one more woe here. I'm not going to get into the second one. I hope to get into it a little later in the series. So I will leave it for that. But this is a poetic description of the Arab hordes. Apollyon is a Greek word which means destroyer. This is how we should view Mohammedanism, even to this very day, as a destructive force which seeks to destroy our Christian civilization. So it is apparent that in the prophetic timing of both Daniel chapter 8 and this portion of Revelation chapter 9, this invasion of the locusts, the little horn which elevated itself even to the prince of princes, coincides with the period following the fall of Rome and the later days of the kingdoms of the successors of Alexander, and both of those things describe the Byzantine Empire rather well. I don't know if you have anything to add. I do remember what I wanted to say a little earlier was that during the period of the Inquisition and the problems with the Jews of Spain against the Christians in, in Spain and what we call modern Portugal, during the Inquisition, the Jews of Spain had consistently appealed to the Muslim Ottoman Turks for help against the Spanish. It, it was rather that there were, there were letters from rabbis in Spain appealing for help to the Ottomans to this very day, and many Jews that left Spain, the ones that didn't make it onto the ships of the conquistadors to head to the New World, because they thought they would be safe from the Inquisition in South America or in the Caribbean, had gone to Turkey and found refuge with the Ottomans. Yeah, today the Inquisition, uh, once again, rewritten history, it's seen as evil, right? That the evil um, prosecution randomly, whatever, just kill random people. But it was clear it was actually a good thing. They tried to turn things around and force out the Jews, right? But it was probably too late because they had so many, um, you know, mongrels in Spain by then. Well, you know, right. It, it was far too late. And part of the problem was that there were many converso Jews that were already in the clergy and in positions of authority and really weren't considered converso Jews any longer because they had converted in, in the 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th centuries and, and had become infused uh, along with the blood of the Spanish through that process. There were always Edomite Jews in, in Spain who had many of whom remained Jews 
throughout history, but many of whom had melded, converted, and melded in with the population. Spain always had that blood problem. And, and that's why it's, I mean, that there may still be white Spaniards today in the North, and, and for this, I, I hope there are. I, I have met several Spaniards that I thought were white that were from Northern Spain, but who knows? It, it's just like Sicily. The Arabs were in Sicily for so long that it, it's difficult to, for outsiders especially, but it's difficult to understand which Sicilians are, are Sicilian. So it's no different in, in Spain. So with this, we should move on to the next proof in the series, which is number 65. It's Revelation chapter 9 that the scorpions, the locusts, scorpions, and the army of the Euphrates, I, I should just reduce that to the army of the Euphrates. We've already discussed the locusts and scorpions in relation to proof number 64. I had actually wrestled with myself as to whether proof number 64 should have been two separate proofs because it is two separate perspectives at two different times on the same historical phenomena. So in a way, it is two different witnesses, right? But I decided to just lump them together. And um, our, our enemies always accuse us of blaming everything on the Jews, but it's true, even the Turkish invasions was, was them, right? They are really behind everything. Well, well, right. And and medieval writers, I would like to thank Martin Luther, I'm pretty sure, but he had, had written about how the Jews were in league with the Muslims as they conquered the cities of Eastern Europe, including Constantinople, which was only perhaps when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg, that was only about 60, 70 years after the fall of Constantinople. 62 years, perhaps. Revelation chapter 9, the army of the Euphrates. So in recent weeks, we hope to have established as fact that both Daniel and the Revelation are prophesying empires and rulers who would rule over the children of Israel in the white nations of Europe and the Middle and Near East. So reading the balance of this chapter, Revelation chapter 9, we must ask who it was that had invaded that land from across the Euphrates, which proves indisputably once again that the Adamic world and the world of the children of Israel are the white Europeans. So continuing with Revelation chapter 9, and the sixth messenger sounded the trumpet, and I heard one voice from the four horns of the golden altar before Yahweh, saying to the sixth messenger, he having the trumpet, release the four messengers, or angels, if you will, who are bound by the great river Euphrates. Those angels aren't necessarily good angels, right? They're angels, they're messengers, that they have a role to fulfill in the history of the course of man. And the four messengers had been released, who had been prepared for that hour and day and month and year. Those, that, that formula is significant, as we shall see. That they should kill a third of the men. And the number of the armies of the horsemen is 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now, we can't, 
we can't interpret this, or we don't necessarily have to interpret this as 200 million men coming over the River Euphrates at one time. But over the course of an hour and day and month and year, and I will explain that as we proceed just a little later on. But once again, we believe that both Howard Rand and Bertrand Compare had also correctly identified this second woe as a description of the Turkic invasions of Byzantine lands. This is the release of those bound by the Euphrates, which is an allegory and not a literal reference, so that the Turkic hordes, who were already converted to Mohammedanism in the 7th and 8th centuries, so that they can begin to cross from the east. It is not a coincidence that hordes of aliens have been converted to Islam in places to which the Jews had sought refuge after being pushed out of the Byzantine Empire, in Arabia and in Khazaria. That's not a coincidence that we have these alien bastards who would never be candidates for conversion to Christianity. There were no apostles writing epistles to Arabia or to the Khazars. were all converted to Islam as the Jews had migrated into Arabia and Khazaria to escape Christianity and, and the, the governance of Christianity in the Byzantine Empire. That's not a coincidence. This process of the invasions of the 200 million man army began in 1055 AD when the Seljuk Turks had captured Baghdad. Eventually, they came to control nearly all of the formerly Arab lands under the Ottoman Empire. But that is not our concern here. They began to move, those lands were already lost to the Arab bastards, right? So what the hell is the problem with the introduction of Mongol bastards, right, of these Turks? It, it really doesn't make a difference. But these Turks began to move on Christian lands in the West around 1064 AD, when they began to clash with Byzantine troops in Asia Minor. In 1067, they attacked Caesarea and then Iconium in Central Asia Minor. Although initially repulsed, within 30 years, they controlled all of Anatolia, and this ushered in the period of the Crusades. But wherever the European nations were able to recapture lands for Christendom, the results were only temporary. Furthermore, the Norman raids of the Balkans and southern Italy and their sacking of Constantinople in 1204 weakened efforts rather than helping them. And the Normans were enlisted to engage in the Crusades in the Levant. And instead, they decided they were going to sack Constantinople, a Christian city. So the Normans didn't do us any favors in the Middle Ages, believe me. By the 14th century, the Turks occupied the Balkans and occupied or subjected many of the Black Sea nations. In 1453, Constantinople, surrounded by lands already fallen to the Turks, finally also fell to them. Actually, they had already taken most of Greece in the 14th century. So, looking at Byzantine resources in this period, compared to Turkic resources, it is amazing that the city held out as long as it did. 
So, so Bill, did they go over the Caucasus Mountains and take all those lands? Is is that what you're saying? Sorry, the the Turks. Well, they had gone as far as Kosovo by the 16th century. I'm pretty sure the Battle of Kosovo was in the early 16th century, but they had already had Romania and other states around the Black Sea as tributaries. And and they were trying to close to to close on Europe to, to be able to get at Europe from two different three different directions. Yeah, so if you if you put the um uh you know you know migrations of our ancestors and then the Turkish invasions on a map, you can really see they're basically following us. They're only going towards us, right? Right. I'm really wrong on the Battle of Kosovo. I'm thinking like 1520s. The second Battle of Kosovo was 1448. The first and famous Battle of Kosovo was earlier than I remembered. It was 1389. So so they were clearly, and, and that's in Serbia, they were clearly, well, it used to be Serbia until the time of Bill Clinton, right? They were clearly through the Balkans and into Serbia by 1389. I'm sorry, you were saying? Oh, that just if you looked at a map, you can clearly see they're going, they're following the woman, right, in prophecy, wherever the Israelites go, that they weren't, that they're basically following our ancient roots. And uh, yeah, that is pretty much amazing that they basically cut off um, Byzantium, or Constantinople, sorry, and they managed to hold out for so long, right? Right. Right. They managed to hold out. I, I don't remember exactly what year they took Greece. I should have put it into that into that narrative, but it was in the 1300s. By the end of the 14th century, they had Constantinople totally isolated. It stood alone and still held out for another 50, 60 years, 70 years. And the Greeks, the Turks ruled over Greece for 500 years. And it took the British and the Russians combined, I believe, to get them out of, to get them out of Greece. But they managed to hold on to Constantinople. Yeah, and the um, Greeks deny that they are Turks or Arabs, right? If you j just go on Google and search why are um, why do Greeks look like Turks or Arabs, they'll deny it because it was because of the invasions. They'll claim, oh, it's because we're Mediterranean Europeans, right? They right. E they're even in denial themselves. Right, but that's also a Jewish trick. <laughs> that's also a Jewish trick foisted upon true Europeans. It's sad, but at least most, I'm not going to say all Greeks are, are mixed. I've seen some very light-skinned blonde Greeks with blue eyes in, in my time. But most Greeks are, are either part Jewish, part Arab, part Turk, or part of all of those things. And that happened during those 500 years that Greece was occupied by Turks. Okay. Concerning verse 15, here, where the King James Version reads in part, for an hour and day and month and year, rather than that hour and day and month and year. That's a minor difference. The Greek may be read either way, but the interpretation need not change. If we interpret this time period by the same prophetic time scale of a year for a day, with, this would add up to around 391 years and 15 days. The Turkic conquest of Anatolia began around 1067 AD, and their conquest of the Eastern Roman Empire ended with the taking of Constantinople in 1453 AD. 
And that is a total of 393 years, which is very close to the 391 years of this period of conquest. The army of 200 million men, in verse 16, need only represent the number of invaders from the east over this entire period of nearly 400 years. It doesn't mean they all came over the border at once. Now, if Africans... that, that This is absolutely ludicrous, right? If these African blacks were the... Israelites. The Turks went to Egypt, and they established an Ottoman sultan in Egypt. I don't know if it's proper to call him Ottoman or not, but they established a Turkic sultan in Egypt. But they stopped there. Why did they stop there? Why didn't they keep going into the Congo and Sudan and Kenya and and, and Zimbabwe, all these other places? Because there was nothing for them there except perhaps a few black slaves, right? Yeah, right. They harvested those areas for slaves, but most of those slaves were traded to the Arabs by African chieftains. They weren't kidnapped and taken hostage. They were traded. And most of the the, the black slaves that later came to America came that same way. Jews and Arabs had traded slaves with African chieftains for a thousand years. Once again, continuing with Revelation chapter 9. And thus I saw the horses in division, and those sitting upon them, having fiery red and and hyacinth and yellow breastplates, and the heads of the horses as heads of lions. And from their mouths came out fire and smoke and sulfur. From these three plagues a third of the men had been killed. From the fire and from the smoke and from the sulfur coming out from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. And their tails, like serpents having heads, and with them they injure. I believe it's quite interesting. And another clear identifier of the fulfillment of this prophecy. Where it says in verse 17, And thus I saw the horses in the vision. And and anything... In John's time, anything which moves and which is used in war would be described with the language available to John at the time would be either a horse or a chariot, one or the other. So here he describes these things as horses. And thus I saw the horses in the vision and those sitting upon them having fiery red and hyacinth and yellow breastplates and the heads of the horses as heads of lions and from their mouths came out fire and smoke and sulfur and this seems to be a poetic description of certain cannon meaning the types of cannons that are used in war constantinople was the first major city in history to have been taken with the help of cannon now sadly It was a Christian gunmaker, Urban of Hungary, whom the Turks hired to build the cannons, 70 of them. And in his book, Marvels of Prophecy, Howard Rand had a picture of one of these cannons, which sat as a war souvenir on the banks of the Thames in Britain. The British had actually brought several of these cannons back with them after their own war with the Turks 
when they had freed Greece from the Turks in the 19th century. The particular cannon is shaped just like a lion, including its limbs, and the mouth of the lion is the mouth or muzzle of the cannon. While its tail looks like a long serpent up its back, where the fuse was lit, just as John describes. It shows you they don't invent anything. It's, it's always us. It, you know, in, in this case, even traitors will invent something for them, right? Right. And Urban of Hungary probably didn't know he was a traitor. Uh, I mean, the Austrian Empire, I don't know if it had antipathy towards the Byzantines at this time. I, I imagine it must have had in order for the Turks to be able to hire a Hungarian cannon maker. But yes, the Hungarian cannon maker shot himself in the foot with his cannon because it wasn't long after the fall of Constantinople that we see Hungary and, and Austria under siege by the Turks. So I don't know why the, why the um, Hungarian cannon maker thought that the Turks would stop at Constantinople. I, I don't know why he imagined that. But yes, we shoot ourselves in the foot all the time. This is not meant to be a full commentary on this chapter. And, and I will include that there's an image of one of those cannon at Christagenia in, already in our Revelation prophecy. And I actually use that as a page in the book, Christrike. There is an image of the cannon that is exactly like John describes. And, and that is extremely striking to me. And, and it's a, to me, that serves as an independent witness corroborating our interpretation of this prophecy. Yeah, why would he build cannons like that, right? It, it, I don't know. It, he must have just wanted to do something uh, dazzling, but but it's very unusual, right? No one would build cannons in that shape and likeness, right? Well, well, you know, you might at, as ornaments for for an army. That it, if you're a wealthy king, you might hire a, a cannon maker to create the cannons in that fashion. But it's not practical if you're fighting a war to insist that your cannons are made in it. I mean, you would want just something that was functional and utilitarian, I would think. But I guess the the Ottomans were full of pomp and, and wanted to glorify themselves with these fancy cannon. But they're very, they're quite elaborate. The elaborate design goes far beyond the functional utilitarian canon, but it fulfills this prophecy. So that's why they were made. <laughs> because God knew, Yahweh knew, Christ knew that they were going to make them. So this isn't meant to be a full commentary on a chapter, but just to see that these things are not a prophecy of things still far off in the future. We will read the, the final two verses of the chapter. And the rest of the men, those who had not been killed by these plagues, did not even repent from the works of their hands, that they do not worship demons and idols, things of gold and things of silver and things of copper and things of stone and things of wood, things which are able neither to see nor to hear nor to walk. And they did not repent from their murders nor from their drugs, 
or pharmacia, nor from their fornication, nor from thefts. And, and I only have a few comments. When the Catholic and Orthodox religions are compared to the ancient Greek and Roman paganism, it is evident that there is not much difference. The Catholics paganized Christianity by transferring the ancient pagan gods and goddesses into the worship of this false conception of saints, whereby they are actually worshiping demons and by their idolatry in the making of statues representing these things. The anti-Christian practices of pharmacia, which is the use of drugs, and fornication, which is race mixing, were also prevalent in Byzantium and Rome and are fully accepted in those churches to this very day. So if Greek Orthodoxy represented true Christianity, perhaps Constantinople would not have fallen. But the Byzantines were punished for these sins which are described here in Revelation chapter 9, and it is evident that they still have not repented. Yeah, they they always are praying to uh, saints or to the apostle or, or to, to Mary or whatever all the time to this day, right? But never just to Christ or to God. To this very day, right. And, and all of these, there, there are some like historic... Roman Catholic saints who were pious people in one way or another throughout modern history or, or more recent history, I should say, the last 1,500 years. But most of these so-called saints are, are actually only re, rewrites, I should say, redescriptions of ancient pagan gods and goddesses. And everything that the Greeks had a god or goddess for the Roman Catholics have a saint. For, for example, the references to St. Elmo's fire may have been references to the wrath of Poseidon in ancient literature. That's just an example. I'm sure that if we sat and thought about it, we could find dozens, if not hundreds, of such examples. Yep, uh, but this all shows that um, clearly there's... Uh two seed lines right there's christians and then there's the other races and that the jews are marshalling all the other races against us with first with these invasions and now we're just being overwhelmed right that just dumping them in every town more and more but but it should become more and more clear if you understand this then you know exactly what's going on and what the ultimate outcome is going to be eventually right well well right that the turks the Islamic Turks or, or the Islamic Arabs in the East may have had skirmishes with the Chinese, but they didn't invade China over a prolonged period of five or six hundred years. Instead, they had their sights set on Europe, and specifically on Europe. They never turned to south to Africa. Sure, they traded slaves and, and, and other merchandise and probably gold and, and other things which are... With, with which Africa is rich, they, they traded with the African chieftains, but why didn't they conquer them and convert them to Islam? They never conquered Africa to convert Africans to Islam, not, not beyond Egypt and, and the northern coast, which were white and, and Roman at the time. They were white and European, and the Vandals and the, and, and the other tribes that had moved into northern Africa later with the fall of Rome. They forcibly converted them to Islam. 
Why didn't they go to Zimbabwe and forcibly convert the, the Hutus or the Tutsis or the Mandingos to Islam? They never did that. They could have more easily done that than try to conquer Europe. It would have been easier for them to isolate and to convert African tribes than European ones, militarily, from a military standpoint. But they didn't do it, and they never tried. It, they always, the Arabs, the Turks, always had their sights set on Europe, and they had their sights set on Europe today. You don't see vast hordes of, of refugees from Arab nations going to Japan or China or India or South America. You see them coming to Europe and America. It's the same thing to this day. And all of this establishes beyond doubt that we are the people of God. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. Good night.